Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Safety and Health Podcast by Safety and Health Practitioner. I'm your host, Ian Hart, and I'm the editor of SHP. On this episode, we hear from James Quinn, Senior Health and Safety Manager at Multiplex and Vice Chair of the IOSH Construction Group. In October, James was appointed the new IOSH President. Following his appointment, I was keen to catch up with him to find out a little bit more about him, his background, and his work promoting veterans, as well as how the pandemic has affected the construction sector. Before we get to that though, I've asked four health and safety recruitment experts, Elliot Fisher at Acre, James Quinn from Owen and Colton, Philip Muston from Shirley Parsons, and Laura Orcott at HSE Recruitment Network, to provide some tips into health and safety recruitment during the pandemic and how it's changed looking for a new job. In this first section of clips, I was keen to find out about some of the challenges with changing roles and gather some tips for looking for a new one. Hi, my name is Elliot Fisher. I'm a senior consultant at Acre, the leading global EHS and sustainability recruitment consultancy. And I manage Acre's contract and interim recruitment specifically within health, safety and environment. It's important to understand that it's a buyer's market right now, meaning there are generally less vacancies available than usual and companies have greater choice with a larger talent pool of immediately available candidates. This is due to things like furlough and a high volume of redundancies in the majority of sectors. I think my best bit of advice for people searching for a role right now is just try and do things a little bit differently. Try and cover all bases when searching for a job. Don't just simply apply for a job online and hope for the best. I think it's really important that you're picking up the phone, trying to speak with people, you know, the hiring manager or people in HR to express your interest and try and sell your profile in that way. James Irwin, Director at Irwin and Colton, Specialist Health Safety and Environment Recruitment Consultants. Some companies have created new roles, either due to the pandemic or broadly because health and safety has risen up the agenda. This has been particularly true at senior levels and, 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 and in organisations in many instances have created new health and safety positions at director, head of or, or VP level. Also during the first lockdown many organisations let go of their teams generally there was huge uncertainty in April time and then since that time they, they've rebounded very very strongly particularly many within the construction infrastructure and house building so there's been many opportunities inside those organizations for health safety professionals. Phil Muston, Managing Consultant, Built Environment, Shirley Parsons. Of course, the first point of contact you have with a number of potential employers is your CV. So making sure this is fully up to date, it's presentable, easily read, and there is a nice flow to it. I would say that go away from looking at them as a job description of what you do, is make it more achievement focused of what you actually did whilst you're there. A lot of job descriptions say one thing, but actually talk about what you did. And when I say you, speak about I, not we. So LinkedIn's becoming a more and more powerful tool and you'll actually find that two in three people find their next role through LinkedIn. So I'd say it's very, very important to have a profile and a presence on there. Whenever a CV is received by a business, nine times out of 10, the first thing they'll do is they'll look to see if that person is on LinkedIn so they can see who they are, what they look like, but also see their experience and how it differs from a LinkedIn to a CV. My name is Laura Orcott and I am brand leader for HSE Recruitment Network. 
we are still finding there is a lot of recruitment, particularly in health and safety. It is a key area and, and most of our clients do still want to commit to it and make sure they're getting the right people, but they are being much, much more particular than perhaps in previous years on the type of people that they want. And if they have a list of criteria, they are looking for people that hit every single point on that list. Whereas in previous years, we had a little bit more flexibility. We could push a little bit more on people that we believed in. I talk a huge amount about personal branding, so I think that is massively key at the moment. You need to have a strong presence. You need to be more than a CV at the minute so that myself, other recruiters, other clients can really see what you're about and see you know, the sort of things that you're passionate about and the things that you engage with outside of the day job, and that'll really make you stand out. Some really interesting tips there. Later in the episode, we'll hear how best to perform in a telephone or video interview and how to integrate remotely when you do start that new job. This episode is sponsored by SHP for Jobs. Advance your career in health and safety, browse hundreds of health and safety jobs and take your next steps as a consultant, health and safety officer, environmental advisor, health and wellbeing manager and many more. SHP for Jobs, the number one site for job seekers looking to secure their dream job, is the official job site of Barbary HS. It specialises in matching the right person to the right role and provides all the tools and functionalities you will need. Or, if you're a recruiter, post jobs and use our database to discover the most qualified candidates. Visit shpforjobs.co.uk for more details. You can also find the link in the episode description. Now, I want to move on to my chat with James Quinn. I caught up with James a few weeks after he was appointed Irish president and just before he was voted amongst SHP's most influential people in health and safety for 2020. In this part of the interview, James talks about his role at Multiplex, how he went about building a health and safety team and his work promoting and supporting veterans. I started off by asking James to talk a little bit about his background and how he ended up in a career in health and safety. I joined the army in 1987. I previously worked as a chef for two years before that, before my 18th birthday I joined the army in 87 and spent 24 years in the army. Left the army in 2011 and then embarked on a health and safety second career. What was it attracted to you to, to health and safety uh, or was it because of your experiences in the in the army that you know it felt like a natural fit for you? When you come through the army, you're always sort of introduced to risk everywhere you go. So from being a young soldier, you're introduced to risks and hazards with shooting a live rifle. You're introduced to risks when you're out running in hot weather. So the hazards and risks are always around you. You just don't really understand them. But the older you get and the more appointments you take on within the armed forces and whatever one of them are, you tend to then start doing a lot more health and safety and, and looking at health and safety and welfare of your soldiers. So that's when the interest comes, when you start to see the bigger picture. You don't see it as a young guardsman or even as a young lance corporal, but as you go further on, in whatever services you are, in whatever rank structure, you will be exposed to a lot more. So for me, when I got to rank of staff sergeant and warrant officer, that's when you start to really get involved on working with the quartermaster, who would be seen as the person that runs the battalion or runs the regiment in terms of all the hazards that are around the area. So, yeah, you become more exposed to it. So, for me, when I was in the army, I did a lot of presenting. I was an instructor. So, for me, the idea of teaching health and safety worked for me, and that's where I first jumped into. 
And was it straight into construction health and safety, or did you start off elsewhere? No, no, I started off with a company called Babcock. Very kind, a good friend of mine now, Simon Donnelly, heard me speaking on a conference call about the training we were doing. We were teaching, I think, the managing safely. I also wanted, which was bespoke, as you know, probably aware, you can make bespoke courses, and Babcock did their own bespoke managing safely course, and I was teaching that. So it was my basic understanding of health and safety that I'd been taught in numerous qualifications that I've done to then teach the basics of health and safety to the workforce. And then from there, I didn't go into construction until back end of 2015. So, but yeah, that's a a great story. What is it you're responsible for at Multiplex now? And can you talk about some of the the projects that you've worked on or or what you're working on at the moment? I was working for Multiplex in, in Abu Dhabi. That's where I made my name. Basically, the interview went along the lines of, Jimmy, we'd love to have you here as our health and safety manager, but we don't need to have you in health and safety construction So because I've got the best operational team here. In fact, you'll learn a lot from them. So what I want you to do is build me a team. So I built a team from myself up to 36 with three health and safety managers from all different walks of life and actually been in health and safety. And then I was area manager for Abu Dhabi, looking after 8,000 operatives a day six days a week for nearly three years. And then my wife wanted me to come back to the UK. I was out there unaccompanied. So I came back to the UK and unfortunately there was no role for me in multiplex at the time. So I had to go and do some work for another company during that time, always waiting for the next project to come up along with multiplex. And that project happened to be the Chelsea Barracks project. And the reason why that's so funny in a way is that I marched around Chelsea Barracks in 1988 as a young soldier. And now I'm back there again you know, as a 51-year-old looking at a new building that's been built and seeing the chapel that I used to sing in and how it's been refurbished. So that was a great experience. And then during lockdown, I got asked to go to the Broadway project as we were um, consolidating uh, the health and safety team. So that's where I am at the moment. I'm at the old Scotland Yard site just next to Petit France in London, just off Victoria Street. That's fascinating how that kind of came full story for you. Really, really interesting there. You talked about how you had to build a team and we talk a lot about kind of leadership in safety and how you go about building a team. What is it you look for when you're looking to build a team of 36 people? What kind of skill sets are you looking for? And you mentioned you brought in people from all different walks of life. What is it you're looking for during that process? I'm looking for people that are genuinely, genuinely want to help people and genuinely want to be part of a team and are genuinely interested in people that like to be taught and people that want to learn. People that are people, people, if that makes sense. People that are people, people people that want to be part of a team, people that, yeah, again, want to learn. So in terms of me, the first person I brought in was a chap called Abdul Rahiman. And Abdul had been in the health and safety game for about 25 years in Abu Dhabi. There wasn't many people he didn't know in Dubai as well. He was very, very well respected. So I brought Abdul in straight away. And then that allowed me to have that conversation with Abdul about the sort of people we were expecting on site because we wanted to change things. We wanted to make sure that we followed the lead that Lawrence Waterman brought out you know, when he did the Olympic Park, that I looked at him and said, 8,000 men a day, 130,000 cube of concrete over a year. You've got people working on top of each other, so many different trades. In theory, you'd be expecting to lose a few people through injury, etc. And I didn't want that to happen. So that was the main reason for me taking the job and the reason why Multiplex bought into me so much was I'll build you the team, but the team needs to be this and it needs to be a ratio of the amount of people that we have on site what we're operational team. So we did that and I started attracting people that Abdul knew, but good people, people that had maybe just passed their health and safety 
people that hadn't been spoiled, so to speak. They'd passed their health and safety qualifications. They were keen and they wanted to start whatever level just to learn. So what we did was we did it more like the military. We built the team and then the team got too big for me. Then we started promoting some of the the safety officers into supervisor roles. Then we started promoting some supervisors on site that were nothing to do with health and safety engineers. That created little clusters. And then I employed a chap called Ryan Brown, who had just finished university with a fire management degree, approached me, he was out on holiday with his, his girlfriend. Then I had another chap called John McFarlane, who worked in Riggs, but comes from a demolition background in the army, in the engineers, so he blew things up. And then I employed a scientist called Trevor Kaninsky, who was very academic, understood detail, and we all learned from each other. It's very interesting you talk about people, people then, because I think health and safety is very much about people and it often gets forgotten when you, you try and deal with all the other complications and sometimes it can be very much overcomplicated. So actually bringing it right back to the focus being on the people, I think is really key there. And it's, if you're building a team, focusing on looking after people, I think it's crucial, like you say, that about having, they understand people and you're able to get on with them. Exactly. And it's quite funny, isn't it, Ian, because it's, there's that we and they aspect still. Even though we're all about the people and we're all about each other, you'll always have that we and they aspect, which I'm really trying to pull away from. Is that why? Because, you know, you're so interested in people and you're getting with people. You've done a lot of work kind of veterans after your time in the army. Can you talk a little bit around that and, and what you do to help promote veterans? I think anybody that reads anything now on, on LinkedIn associated with my name will see that it's all about the veterans for me. Amongst other things as well, you know, young people and, and mental health are, 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 are massive things for me. But I think... When I left the army, I made the most stupid mistake cutting everybody off. I left everybody. I just didn't want to know about the army anymore. I'd seen that as something that I'd done, didn't want it there. And I wanted to concentrate on my second career, which was going to be health and safety. And there was no room for that. That was one of the biggest mistakes I could ever make. It was absolutely terrible. And I really suffered from that. And if it hadn't been me joining the South Coast branch, where there was a couple of vets in there, I could simply have been lost. And the IOSH part, that sort of branch ethic or entity, alongside being in a corporal's mess or a sergeant's mess or an officer's mess in the army, it was the same sort of vibe. You could go there, you could talk to people, you could learn stuff. When you're a, a sergeant's mess member in the army or an officer's mess member, all the business gets done in the mess and you, you, you have all these conversations and the same with stuff at the branch. So I was sort of rescued a bit at the branch. And then I thought to myself, I wonder how many other people have made the same mistake. And there's a lot of veterans out there making that exact same mistake. You know, I was lucky I took on my resettlement before leaving the army four years out. But we still get people now that are not resettling at the right time. As soon as you leave that gate, after those 24 years, you're forgotten. You know, I'm not going to be able to go back. So it's all about trying to educate veterans and the fact that they need to look at resettling when they look at resettling and all the advice that's out there for them and that's what I want to try and do and IOSH are going to work with me this next year and you know that creme de la creme the, the gold standard we'd like to hopefully see at the end of my 12 months if not 18 months would be an IOSH group for veterans. And is that very much around where your mental health interest and work around mental health comes as well about, you know, looking at, again, it all comes back to the people, doesn't it? And about looking after those people when they do start to try to isolate themselves. And I'm interested to talk a little bit more on the mental health around the COVID pandemic as well and how construction, mental health is a huge thing in construction as well. And I think construction industry is one of the one industries that, that actually tackles it really, really well, but it still is, is a huge issue there. So, Talk a little bit around your, your role around mental health and also mental health in construction and, and how the pandemic has affected that and affected construction in general. That's a massive question. I mean, I'm quite lucky that, that, that we as IOSH 
have now agreed to do two focus groups for my 12-year gig. And that's, we're doing one on veterans and how that looks. And we've got one in mental health. So the one in veterans, we've got a, I've got a veteran, Matt Jackson, a member of council. He's leading that. His vice chair is a chap called Simon Donnelly. And they're going to lead that team. And within that team, it's not just veterans. There's other areas of other people with other occupations. And the mental health one, I've got a cracking guy called Keith Hall, very outspoken in mental health, a chartered fellow of IOSH and a member of council. And another lady, Joanne Price. Joanne is the vice chair. So and that team as well is all a mixture. So we're doing that work to the side. IOSH, as you know, are doing so much work as well. And that's well recorded. But from my company, Multiplex at the moment, you know, I, I just did a podcast last week with our health and safety development manager, a lady called Claire. And Claire has been leading a lot in our health and safety for our company, so much so that the ratio is above the UK standard of mental health first aiders. We meet every three months. Claire is putting out lots of information. But one of the great things we just started doing, Ian, is the stand down. We do a stand down every two weeks now. And the main question on that stand down is how mental health is affecting you as a worker. And some of the answers we've had to that have been pretty outstanding in a way that we've got people, not just our people, but other people have shared with other people, coming to work with anxiety before they come to work because they know they're leaving their families. It's like they're leaving the families, coming to an area which is presumed as a very dangerous area and you're in construction, you've got the, the COVID thing about it, as our company and especially our sites as well are making sure that everybody that comes to site comes to site safely but not just that old adage now to come to work safely go home safely we're making sure that we've got the temperature cameras we're making sure that we've got the social distancing we've got the signage we've got the risk assessments redone we're out there talking to people every day the whole operational team so me as the health and safety manager my role is just to i see now oversee the operations team doing more that they can do to make sure that these anxieties are, are really looked at. That's the one main thing that we're getting, the anxiety of coming to work, the dark nights, the dark mornings. That's the worry for a lot of people. Huge amounts of anxiety from going to work in, in an office at the moment. So it must be tenfold multiplied by, you know, if you go into work in a dangerous environment, so it must be a real challenge to kind of tackle that. I guess in construction as well, there's certain amounts of the demographic of the workforce as well. They're kind of often isolated from their family as well because they're maybe living abroad or they may be living away from home because they're working on a specific project. So you've got that extra element of you move location from project to project. You, you can be isolated from your family for long periods of time. So that, I guess, is a huge challenge as well. If you look at the, de- the statistics of the workforce that are in construction now, there was a lot of people from Europe. And you can understand how worrying they are that they want to get home for Christmas. And, you know, if they're coming to work, they're still going to have a job. And that was one of the main things that we talked about, especially in, in our project. We talked about the fact we need to make it as safe as possible. I mean, we've got our own COBRA committee that was set up, the, the project director set up as well. So very interesting in, in, in this because it's, it's changing all the time, Ian. We've got to consider that part of it. We've got to take that worry away as best we can. I was fascinated with James's thought process on leadership and team building and how important it is to focus on people. It's also really inspiring to see how he's using his background and experience in the armed forces to help others. In the next of our equipment clips, here is some advice from our four experts for a successful video or telephone interview and how it differs from face-to-face interviews.
Most clients indeed have moved across during this pandemic to video interviews, particularly in the in, in the first instance, and many are, are recruiting purely based upon video interviews. Most importantly, test, test, and test again your technology on the platform you will be using, whether it's Zoom, Teams, Skype, whatever that might be. Test it in the locality, in the position you're going to be having the interview because Wi-Fi can change, anything can change. So just have a run through in that location, whichever room you're going to be planning on having that in. Make sure all, all the other Wi-Fi devices are off in the house as well, just so you're getting all that Wi-Fi coverage through to your video interview. I always suggest blurring the background if possible. It's really easy to do on Microsoft Teams and always light from the front. Really important, small but, but important. And use a video interview to your advantage. You can have sticky notes out on the screen to use as key points for you that you're keen to get across and key bits of, of information. So it can be tricky, a, a video interview, but, but also there are opportunities here as well. The hardest thing during a video or a telephone call is building rapport and ultimately in a, a Czech environment, nine times out of ten people hire on personality. So I think the key thing is with all of them is preparation. Also very important with a video is to make sure you know what the interviewer sees. So make sure behind you there is a clear wall or anything that isn't standing out or offensive or anything like that. Ultimately what you don't want to do is you don't want anything that could distract the interviewers away from you and regularly distract them. They're not massively different to in-person. You don't need to panic about them. Really think about your first impression. Preferably do put that suit on. I won't tell if you just wear a shirt and a tie and you've got your pyjama bottoms on the bottom half, but do try and look professional if you can. You need to really, really listen and really pay attention in these sorts of environments to make sure you're picking up on all the cues, you're picking up on all the body language that you might not get if it's virtual as opposed to in person. And the other thing I really think is important on video interviews is, is to be really, really to the point. I think it's not the same as having a chat in person. It doesn't have that same feel. You do still want to build a rapport with someone and you do still want to connect with them but when they ask you a question make sure you're thinking about you know your star system to answer your competency questions properly and get that information in there really really succinctly. It's definitely going to be a bit more unnerving meeting someone for the first time virtually face to face when you're sat in your living room but treating it like a normal interview is just going to be the best way to go and make sure you're in a quiet space don't sit somewhere where there's going to be interruptions or distractions or where someone might walk in the room. And it's also important that you have your mobile phone turned off or anything that might cause a distraction to you while you're having the interview. Now back to my chat with James Quinn. At the end of the first section, James is talking about how the coronavirus pandemic has affected the construction sector and the mental health of those working within it. In part two, James talks about his plans as IOS president and the importance of people starting out on a career in health and safety receiving the correct support and guidance. I started off by asking James about the dangers of focusing too heavily on the coronavirus risk and forgetting about some of the more traditional safety hazards. You know, it may sound blasé here, but COVID is just another risk and it's just another part to your day. You're still doing your reviews of all your risk assessments every day. You're still on site making sure people are putting chalk blocks in front of their, their scissor lifts and mutes. You're still making sure that they've got their pieces of kit tethered, that the Vertimax is still secure. It's just another I don't see it as detracting from anything else. In fact, and as a hazard, of all the hazards I've got on site, it's the easiest one for me to control because everybody's so educated about it. Stuff's out there. Everybody can see it. When you go home at night, you don't see stuff saying, 
you know, tether your tools, you're working from height, but you see COVID everywhere. So that, for me, is an easy hazard to control. You've obviously referenced uh, Irish a good few times now. I'm interested to know how you became with, involved in Irish in the first place and kind of the support they've given to you over the years, right the way up to how do you go about becoming your, in your role now as Irish president? How, do, how does that work, that process? So basically, as I mentioned before, I felt a little bit lost when I left the army in 2011. And even though I had some friends round about, I then saw the benefits of that sort of giving a bit back. So I did a couple of presentations at Branch and then I moved out to the Middle East. And there was a lot of problems, not a lot of problems, but the Middle East branch had a lot of great work had been done so far by some previous members of council that had really grown the membership. I got asked if I would think about joining the committee when I went to the UE, it was 2014. I said, yeah, absolutely. So I went on the committee, did some um, bits and pieces, and there's a lot of stuff going on with the old blueprint at the time, and I was really interested in that. And I was asking questions about, you know, why have IOSH not got their own level three course. Why Why do I have to go outside of IOS to get a level three course by membership? So I was doing all that sort of work behind the scenes and, and asking those sorts of questions, but also delivering a lot of presentations at the branches. Then somebody said to me, Jimmy, have you ever thought of being a counsellor? I said, no, well, they're doing, they're asking for counsellors for the next year. So I went, put my details on and amazingly got voted in to be council. And then at council, I was asked to go on to a focus group similar like I'm doing now, and I agreed to go into the focus group. And then somebody said to me, Jimmy, you have got the right character to be a member of the presidential team. Would you consider it? Of course I'll consider it. So I threw my hat in the ring. I had to stand in front of all my peers, 36 members council, and they turned around and said, yeah, we like you. So I got voted in as a vice president. And then two years later, I threw my hat in the ring for president and then presented in front of council again what my strategy would be, be as their president. And I get voted in again as the president of the institution. So it's as simple as that, mate. It was just like doing lots of work, you know, not so much getting myself noticed, but just being available and just being a good volunteer. Some people do like it. Some people will not be guided that way. There'll be people that will go on council and be happy in council. There'll be people that will do vice president and be happy with that. But for me, you know, I just really wanted to make sure that I wanted to try and get to the position where I could really make some change for me and for the things that I was interested in within OSH as well. So there's that little selfish part in me, but there's the other part of, of spreading the word of IOSH. And you talked a little bit about your, your strategy there, and I know you've, you've talked uh, already in kind of uh, interviews in the past about how it's an important time for the pr- profession at the moment. Are you able to uh, to share a little bit about what that strategy is and what your plans are for the next 12 months and, and why it is so important that the safety profession is seen in such a positive light at the moment? For me, we've already started doing the work now for the next strategy. So we know we're approaching 2022. We've already done some horizon scanning. We've met as a council, which was fantastic. You know, we had a 400% increase in the numbers that wanted to be involved in this strategy. Whereas I don't think there was that many that wanted to be involved in the last strategy. But in this strategy, everyone wants to be involved, which is fantastic. We're working on that as part of the bigger picture. What that looks like at the moment, I don't know. But there's going to be a lot of stuff there because we've got so many changes, especially with the competency framework as well. The plan will be definitely to build on what we've already done. So it will build on, collaborate, influence, enhance, and it will continue in that way. What it exactly looks like, I don't know. But real thing for the next 12 months will be as businesses recover. That's going to be the big, a big job for us in the next 12 months, looking at that, how, looking how they're going to come to us and how we're going to be able to guide them. Because as I say to everybody else, health and safety has never been in a better place to be loved. You know, in the past, you're always seen as the archetypal policeman. You're on site, 
health and safety, or there's a health and safety person. You know, the words health and safety, they are the words. They're the words that we all know and recognise. The institution, you know, of safety and health, I get that. But you've got to look at the other words that fall behind that, Ian. Words like honesty, respect, transparency, you know, those ownership, reflection. And that's the sort of things that I want to try and get going in this next year, because we want to try and teach people now on site. I have always seen myself as a person that's always on site, but I don't want to be the person that's picking up this and picking up that. I want to be able to go out and guide people. So for me, everybody is looking to health and safety at the moment. Everybody's looking to the OSH practitioner. So we should make good use of that. We're in that honeymoon period at the moment where we've got the opportunity to educate people. So that's how I see that. And that's how I see my work going as well. You talked about the place that the profession's in. It's in a good place now. And, and as businesses start to recover, and I guess it's maybe kind of come back to some of those transparency and honest, the words that you just used then about what advice would you give to practitioners in order to take advantage of that situation that they're in now? You know, they're being looked at as important people within their organisations. How do they go about capitalising on that chance that they've got now to not only influence change within their own business, but influence change within safety at work in general? You know, that's a, that's a great, I mean, I could talk about myself, but I mean, that's to think outside the box. Everybody wants safety and health practitioners to be outside the box. They're not looking, people are not looking now to going out there and being the as that safety police, which, which irritates me. It's more about how can we do it and how can we do it differently? It's about getting engagement, not from you, but when you sit in a meeting and it comes to health and safety, Jimmy Quinn doesn't really want to be the one that talks. He wants the logistics manager to talk or the construction manager to talk or one of the site managers to talk. He wants the site manager to give him a call and just say, Jimmy, I've seen this on site. What do you think? Could we do something better here? It's to create that we, not that they. To take that we away, Ian, if it sounds right, and stick it in a box and bury it. We want to get away from that. It's got to be about the we, not they're doing that they do that. It's got to be the we approach. So I think any health and safety person worth their salt who can get out there and think outside the box, come up with new ideas, create that we and get rid of the they, I think is a good place. Just finally, we're just going to touch on kind of the support that you've had. And you mentioned young people coming into the profession. Why is it important for young people coming into safety, receiving the the, the correct guidance and support? And, and how can figures like yourself and IOSH in general go about helping to support those people to, to get into, into health and safety? Really got to attract the top talent, haven't you? It's one of those things. I mean, in terms of encouraging young people to have that viable first choice, I remember I wanted to be a chef before anything. I always wanted to be a chef. And then when I became a chef, I had every bit of support next to me. I had mentors. I had some amazing people teaching me how to use a knife. When I went to college, it was there was great people there mentoring me there and it was accessible and it was there. I don't see health and safety as any different. You know, we want to attract the best talent and we know that the best talent, I'm probably going to get shot for this, but the best talent is when you're young and eager and full of enthusiasm, you know, that really inquiring mind, thirst for knowledge. Don't get me wrong, I had a thirst for knowledge when I went into my second career, but that's when we want to try and grab them and try and mentor them as, as much as possible. And, and we're going to do a lot of work on that this year, Ian. I know we are, I also already said we are. I don't know how, again, how that looks like yet. For me, it looks like getting into colleges more. It needs to, um, there's a lot of stuff that I know that Vanessa Harwood Witcher is doing to try and influence young people to get into uh, health and safety. But for me, it's as well as a young person's game as an older person's game. And it'd be wonderful to see them coming in as a first career, mate.
what's interesting from my point of view and why I kind of find it so interesting, and I think it's what's a, a useful message to get across, is that you might want to be a chef, you might be interested in music, but you know, you might not be able to play an instrument or you might not be able to cook, but actually you can get into those sectors and industries within health and safety and you can be in the music industry, you can be in the sport industry, but from a health and safety perspective. And actually sometimes it's just kind of overlooked. Oh, I, I can't cook, I can't be a chef or I can't play sport, therefore sport's you know, the, the end of the line for sport there for me. So I think that's quite an interesting message to get across to people about that there are opportunities there. That's a brilliant analogy. That's a brilliant analogy, Ian. Yeah, that's a great analogy, mate. Just because you don't think you can do it doesn't mean you can't be exposed to it. Yeah, absolutely. It was really interesting to hear James describe COVID as just another risk and how it's probably the easiest hazard to control. His advice about thinking outside the box and how it's all about the we very much echoes what you were saying in the first part of the interview about communication and having the right people around you. If you want to read about some young and enthusiastic safety professionals with some great ideas, check out the winners of SHP's 2020 awards, where we recently named the Rising Star UK, Rising Star in Construction and Rising Star in Manufacturing. And you can find the link to that in the episode description. Before I leave you, I want to bring you the final part of our recruitment tips. This clip is all about once you've secured that new role and provides some advice on integrating yourself into a new company and its culture, especially during the pandemic when you may not have physically been on site or met any of your colleagues in person before you start. When you are successful and you have secured yourself a role, integrating into a new company and joining a new company during a pandemic and when you might be in lockdown and you're working from home is really, really different. Some sort of basic tips for that is making sure that your induction is everything you need it to be and don't be scared to ask for information and ask for things that you need to really get yourself settled in so you know when they're they're telling you about your induction and and what's going to happen on the first couple of days make sure that perhaps they've assigned you a buddy or someone that you can rely on and go to to ask questions that you can have regular catch-ups with you know even if you're a senior person having a mentor or having someone there is really helpful when you're not in the same physical space and make sure you're following up on things you know so if they get you to do some video training and things like that make sure you're following up with emails you're talking to people about the training you've done because if you were in the office and you had some training you'd go back to your desk and then you'd have a conversation with the the colleagues next to you so try and create that environment and try and build those relationships arrange coffee mornings or afternoons with colleagues that you either work with directly or that you just come across every now and again email them call them and set up a 10-15 minute coffee so often the main place you get to know people is actually when you step away from your desk and you go to the kitchen to make a coffee so we suggest having a bit of 10-15 minutes to get to know people who you are working with and it, it does work really really well I would just treat this like starting any normal new job. However you would settle in and integrate yourself into a company, introduce yourself to as many people as you can, just like you would go around, shake people's hands in the first week in the office. Do the same thing by calling people up or dropping them an email to introduce yourself, or ideally, if you can, have a video call. This is new to everybody. And so a lot line manager may assume things are going well and you may be feeling isolated. So, so just reach out. I think that's a really important, important point. 
And, and if you are home in a new role, uh, working from home, you haven't met your teams, just really try and look for connections with your new colleagues. You know, are there any shared interests you've got, any shared hobbies, shared passions, shared sports teams that you, that you support? Just to connect because video calls can have the tendency to, to be focused on work and once that's done, the call's over. Whereas if you're meeting face-to-face, it's much more of a tendency to have that, that more informal coffee pot talk, uh, which is perhaps harder to achieve over a video call, but you can certainly make that happen to search for those shared connections. I'd like to say a huge thank you to James Quinn for joining me on this episode. Also, thank you to Elliot Fisher, James Owen, Phil Muston and Laura Alcott for sending in their recruitment tips. If you've not listened to the previous five episodes of the Safety and Health podcast, please do go back and check those out now. Last time out, we heard from Robert Dukes, the Health, Safety and Environment Manager at Wax Lyrical. Robert spoke about some of the challenges the coronavirus pandemic has brought to the manufacturing sector, and you can find the link to the SHP Podcast Hub in the description of this episode. If you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get the latest episodes as soon as they are released, and we'd be really grateful if you could rate us and give us a review so that we can get the shows out to a wider audience. If you missed any of SHP's webinar Wednesday series where we covered various topics including safety culture, leadership, risk assessments and driver safety, all those are now available to listen to on demand via the link in the description. Please do stay tuned to shponline.co.uk for the very latest health and safety news where you can also sign up to our daily e-newsletter. Thank you very much for listening and see you on the next episode. Mm